0: Evil. The book of Job is the account of the suffering of a righteous man who had done nothing <clears throat> wrong, nothing whatsoever, to bring about the horrific trial, trials that he endured. And so in his suffering, Job is not only an example of how we face suffering. But it plays an important role in our understanding of redemptive biblical history. And if you can imagine, just set in your mind uh, all the trials that Job has gone through. And so where Job is now, he picture a trash dump, a rubbish heap outside of the city burning, smoldering continuously. And there is this man, Job, sitting on a trash dump, terribly alone. His only companion uh, is a piece of broken pottery that he uses to scrape his sores with. Everything about Job is broken. And he's all alone. But, fortunately, he has some good friends... Some comforters that are gonna come along, and the whole back and forth of the conversation between Job and his friends takes place in Job chapters four to all the way to chapter thirty-seven. So we're gonna look at this entire uh, expanse of Job, and and these this this entire section is made up really. Of three cycles. Uh, starting out in chapter 4, uh, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, speaks. Job responds. Then Bildad speaks. Job responds. Uh, Zophar speaks. Job responds. That's one cycle. Then the very same thing happens in a second cycle. Where Eliphaz speaks, Job responds, Bildad speaks, Job responds, Zophar speaks, Job responds. And that's, that's cycle two, the same friends, the same order, with Job responding. Now, cycle three, the same order, except this time, instead of Zophar appearing, there's a younger man, uh, Elihu, who, who appears and speaks, and then Job response but you have this these three cycles that repeat. And each time Job's friends they they really pressure him or ply him about some obvious conclusions based on his suffering. They're saying, Job, you're suffering like this because you have unconfessed sin. And of course Job resists them. The conversation uh, goes on and on and I would say that it becomes increasingly hostile as, as they go on as Job and his friends or his comforters talk together and so I want to point out several aspects of these conversations some things that we can draw out of this without having to completely deep dive and go through each individual section uh, w- one note I'm going to be referring back and forth to several uh, chapters and verses, so it might be easier to just jot them down as opposed to trying to flip through most of them. One of the things that I find unique about this is there are several issues that Job and his friends agree on and that we can draw out of this. There are several plain, I would call them plain truths about God. Uh, for instance, God is all powerful. This was not a matter of dispute. For example, Bildad would say this. Dominion and dread belong to him, to God, the one who establishes harmony in the heavens. That's Job 25.2. And then Job agrees. Job says, he stretches the northern skies over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Job 26.7. Elihu says in chapter 34, basically saying, if God put his mind to it, listen to this, if God put his mind to it and withdrew his spirit and breath, every living thing would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. That's their view of God. That's, pretty, that's a pretty powerful uh, uh, God that they have an understanding of. And so through through the entire chapter here, Elihu is saying that God alone is the sovereign judge. He says God is exalted beyond their knowledge. He covers his hands with with lightning and commands it to hit its mark. God is mighty. In chapter 37, Elihu continues with with this understanding of the greatness of God, saying that God is behind the storm, the snow, the torrential rains. The windstorm, the ice, he goes on. The lightning, the clouds. He says this about, he says, God is behind the clouds that swirl about, turning round and round at his direction, accomplishing everything he commands them over the face of the inhabited world. What a God that they knew about. What a God they worshipped. The Almighty, we cannot reach him. He is exalted in power. I mean, we can read these things. We, we think of Job as kind of, Depressing as we read through it. But this is not depressing. This is glorious. This is wonderful. Hearing these words of how wonderful, how powerful our God is. Do you know how God directs his clouds or makes their lightning flash? Job and his friends all agreed on this. They brought this same worldview of God into their conversations. So, one question I have is, is this the God that we worship? Do we think of God in this way? In the same way that Job and his friends did? Is this all-powerful all the time? And Job and his friends not only recognized that God is all-powerful, but they agreed that God is all-good. Elihu, in chapter 34... Uh, This would be verses 10 and 12. He says, It is impossible for God to do wrong, for the Almighty to act unjustly. For he repays a person according to his deeds. He brings his ways on him. Indeed, it is true that God does not act wickedly, and the Almighty does not pervert justice. All of them understood that God blesses those who are good. Bildad kind of asked rhetorically, in chapter, in 8.3, does God pervert justice? Of course, the answer would be no. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Of course not. That's not what God is like. He's just the opposite. And uh, Bill Dadd counseled Job in, in that chapter to be patient. He says, because Job, if you're truly righteous, as you keep saying you are, then you can be confident that God will vindicate you. Uh, you can be confident that God will not reject you, a person of integrity, if you truly have a sin. But Bildad was saying that God's goodness shows itself in the fact that God does not support the wicked, but that God punishes the wicked. Eliphaz uh, says, In my experience, those who plow injustice... And those who sow trouble will reap the same. Job knew this well. He said to God in, in he was talking at this point really to God in uh, chapter 10 verse 14. If I see <sighs> you, you would notice. And you would not acquit me of my wrongdoing. So we can see that between Job and his friends. That they all. Agree that God is all powerful, God is all good. He blesses the righteous, He punishes the wicked normally, and this is normally evident because this testifies to what God is like to who God is. Now, do we always think of God as being good? What are some ways that we see God's kindness in our lives? Have you ever thought about work as being a kindness of God in your life? (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you realize that work was not a part of the fall? Work was pre-fall. And if you think of it that way, it was really very kind of the Lord to allow us to have some kind of meaningful labor in this fallen and cursed world. And in our jobs, of course, doing what's right, doing what's good, will normally benefit you. In our homes, we want to raise children with an understanding of God's commitment to bless good and punish what's wicked. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the principle behind discipline. The idea that God wants good and God opposes evil. Now, into this world with an all powerful God, an all good God, of course, came Job and his experiences of the horrible suffering. And you've got to understand, Job's situation was not just normally difficult, it was out of this world difficult. I mean Job experienced wave after wave after wave of 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 suffering. And perhaps the most horrific suffering that caused the most grief was the loss of all ten of his children in a single day. I was talking to my to my parents just last week and they were telling me a story of a good friend of theirs. This man had two sons, and one of the sons had died uh, last year. Uh, the remaining son died in a car accident just a couple of weeks ago. And on the day of the funeral of this son, the father died that morning. And, of course, medically, they deemed that the father died of a heart attack. But, of course, all the people in that community who knew him would have said he died of a broken heart. And, and I, th- I thought of this when I was trying to at least get a little bit of grasp of the grief that Job must have been experiencing. How profound his grief was. And and compound that with the loss of all his worldly possessions. The loss of his standing In his community, you know, uh, he, in 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 chapter twenty nine, he he kind of reflects back uh, on all that he's lost. He has a longing to remember the pleasantness, and he says, you know. uh, I would be as I was in the days of my youth, when God's friendship rested on my tent, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my feet were bathed in cream and the rock poured out streams of oil for me. You can see him kind of leaning back, imagining this. But of course, this wasn't the case now. He'd lost everything, including his friends and family. He was an outcast. He even says in chapter 30, But now they mock me, men younger than I am, whose fathers I would have refused to put with my sheepdogs. They mock me. And on top of all this was his physical suffering. So everyone could see Job's suffering. And, of course, now, at this point of suffering was when Job's friends came in. You know, one of the things that 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 frustrates me a lot is what some of the best-selling books are in Christian bookstores right now. It's all about the good life. The glass is half full. But does it surprise you that the Bible talks so realistically like this? I mean Listening to a lot of the, I would call them, pop Christian writers, <coughs> uh, even tele-evangelists, you would not think that the Bible is a place that you go to find such realism. You would not think that, there, that you would find anything about suffering in the Bible. That it's all about having your best life now. But the Bible is very realistic about Suffering. Christianity is centered on the idea of the omnipotent, all-good God becoming a man who suffered and experienced death. He understands us. He has sympathy for us, regardless of age, status, race, or gender. And the Bible is realistic about telling us not to put our hope in this life. We're not to put our hope in this life, in our job, in our families. Or we're not to put our hope in anything that God gives us. We put our hope in God himself. So notice how honest Job was, even to his friends here. I mean, he spills his heart out to them. As much as he was hurting. So one thing to think about. Are you ever this honest with your Christian friends? When you're suffering, do you hold it in? Or do you find somebody to share it with? Do you ever speak this openly to those around you, what you're thinking and feeling deep down in your own soul? Pray that God would give you wise friends, not friends like Job's friends and pray that you can be a wise friend whom you can help when they have a need. You know, Job was a puzzle to his friends, difficult and an enigma. That sounds like a good word to use. Uh, difficult to understand. On the one hand, they 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 thought that his guilt was very obvious because of his suffering. That they could see from a distance. Based on the magnitude. Of his suffering. They thought that he must have been guilty. Of some very great sins. And his friends. Confronted him. Uh, Eliphaz. In five, in chapter 5 verse 17. He says. He, he kind of speaks kindly to Job. And says. See how happy. The man is whom God corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. For he crushes, but he also binds up. He strikes, but his hands heal. Now, Bildad is a little bit less tactful in what he says in chapter 8, verse 4. Job, since your children have sinned against God, he gave them over to their rebellion and let them get killed. I mean, that's kind of Bildad's... Uh, answer or response to Job. Uh, Zophar, in chapter 11, verse 4, says, Job, you've said that your teaching is sound and that you're pure in, in God's sight, but only if God would speak to you and declare his case against you, he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Job, you should know that God, because you're not dead yet, God has chosen to overlook some of your sins. If he hadn't overlooked them, you'd be dead just like your children. This was their acts of comfort uh, to Job. And so to his friends, Job's guilt was really, really obvious. You know it was it was very obvious. You know, Eliphaz at one point runs out of patience and tells Job there's no end to your iniquities. Your evil is abundant. Job, I'll be specific with you. You're a rich man or you were a rich man, weren't you? And you expect us to believe that you got rich honestly and justly and kindly without ever deceiving or lying to anybody? Come clean, you hypocrite. And then, you know, he gives the appeal for Job to repent. And in chapter 22, there's this wonderful appeal and beautiful expression of the offer of the gospel. It's in chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. And there have even been Bible studies led on this passage. But the problem is with many of these Bible studies is they have wrenched this out of its context, especially since it's totally inappropriate words. Directed to the wrong man. So this is Job's comforters and their outlook. And we find this outlook everywhere. <clears throat> you know that we even find this outlook in the sound of music? Captain Von Trapp. He declares his love. You know the song uh, that... that uh, uh, that, that they sing back and forth, that, that she sings. Maria, perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. There it is. Something good happened to me. Therefore, I must deduce that somewhere back in my childhood, I must have done something good. And this was the mindset of Job's comforters. That something bad, Job had to have done something bad. For all this suffering to take place. Well and Job was struggling with understanding this too. Job knew he was innocent. And yet he was confused over why God would do this. Why would God treat me like this. If I am his friend Job would have asked. And he he asked God he says if I have sinned. What have I done to you watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your target? So that I have become a burden to you? you. know, Job even goes to the point of suggesting that God had denied him justice. My face has grown red with weeping. And darkness covers my eyes, although my hands are free from violence. And my prayer is pure. So, so Job is confused. You know, the, the problem Job has is not just... His innocent suffering, but also the wicked prospering. You know, Job was wondering, he, he goes, they spend their days in prosperity and they go down to the grave in peace. Yet they would say to God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. So why am I a man of righteousness, a man pure of heart suffering, And the wicked don't. What was God doing? Well. Of course. Job didn't have the insight. That we have as we. Would read through Job. Because reading chapters 1 and 2. We know. Why Job is suffering. We know all the answers. To the questions that Job. And his friends keep asking. And, And. And. it's interesting that that there's some irony here in the way Job's friends were seeing him in chapter 22 Eliphaz asks this question he goes uh, can a man be of any use to God can even a wise man be of use to him Uh, does it delight the almighty if you are righteous does he profit if you are perfect in your behavior does he correct you and take you to court because of your piety? And of course, the answer would be no. But what Eliphaz didn't know was what we know—that in some cases, God does uh, allow a pious person to suffer. You know, this is this is kind of like a, a scene in a detective story, where that's your reading or the movie, where you know the clues. And, and you're reading the story, and the detective overlooks this key clue, which is what's happening to Job's friends here. And you're going, "It's right there! It's right there!" And when they overlook that clue, you're gro- you're just groaning, going, "No, no, no! It's 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 right there." But these are what the friends are like: is that they're overlooking some important truth, and they tend to misapply a truth. You know. It's interesting too, all these arguments that the friends were making against Job implies something that you have to kind of extract from the test from the text. It implies that they, even though they thought of Job as being guilty, they thought of themselves as being innocent. At least compared to Job, they thought of themselves as being innocent because they weren't suffering like Job. And the whole story here turns on the fact that they were not as good as Job. Do you know why? Because if they were as good as Job, they would have been suffering the very same way. It's exactly because they were not as good as Job, because God did not brag on them saying, have you seen my servant Eliphaz? Have you seen Bildad? How he fears me? God never said that of these three friends. He only said that of Job. God pointed at Job. Not because of his sin, but because of his pure heart, his virtue, his fear of the Lord. He pointed out Job. Because God knew that in suffering, Job would bring God praise and glory and honor. <laughs> they thought that life could be explained through, we would call it through karma, uh, a kind of a quid pro quo type of life balance. In your own life, do you think it's a quid pro quo? If I do good, I will receive good? You know, I would challenge you that God has purposes in your life that you don't see. God has purposes that He uses your employer that your employer doesn't see. God has purposes and reasons in your life that your friends, your spouse, doesn't see. Maybe remember back to when you were a child. I know for some of you it will take a little bit longer to remember that time than others. (laughs) I'm still crying. But remember a time when your parents told you no and you just couldn't understand why because there was no reason for them to say no but a little bit later when you're a little bit older you can see that it was actually for your good well that's the experience that we have with God things right now that don't seem right to us as we get older spiritually as we come to know God better we can come to understand why he would say no or why things happen as they happen. You know, I think if we understand as much as we can about what God is up to, that way we can apply it correctly and not be like Job's friends. We sang about it this morning, how God is mysterious. Job often talked about the inaccessibility of God. He said, if only I knew how to find him so that I could go to his throne, I would plead my case. So God is mysterious. But he has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us even through the book of Job. We know that God is patient. Full justice does not always come immediately. Not all suffering in life is punishment. God is doing other things in this life that we don't fully understand. We know that God is trustworthy. He's proven himself by his faithfulness throughout life. You know, one of the, I guess I would say the odder aspects of Job, as bitter as some of his complaints are, he seemed to always know that God was trustworthy. Something in the way that God had dwelt with Job throughout his life had let Job know that God is trustworthy. You know, this is why Job seemed to have so much confidence in God as he looked to the future. This is why Job can call us to trust God. You know, a hurting and confused Job could still say this. This is out of Job 13, chapter 13, verse 15. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance, for no godless person can appear before him. Job shows this kind of confidence throughout the whole arc of this story. In chapter 14, he seems to understand that one day after he has died, he will be resurrected. I know my living Redeemer. I mean, some translations say, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that as the the last, he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see God. Think of all the suffering he's experienced. Job still knows that God is worthy of trust. What an amazing thing to know and understand, especially after all that Job had been through. Can you recall In your own lives, situations where God has demonstrated his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Let me toss this out to you husbands. How well are you doing in leading your wife to trust God more? How are you doing in leading your wife to understanding the truths about God? That God is ultimately trustworthy. Hmm. Even through suffering, God is trustworthy. Job in in chapter 28, verse 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding do you see how trusting in God believing in an all powerful God believing in an all good God changes your perspective on trials and suffering you can face them knowing that God is good and has shown himself worthy of trust <laughs> there's, there's one last thing And that is that we can see through Job that God has sent us a mediator. Job requested, desired a mediator. In Job 9, chapter 9, verse 33, Job says, There is no one to judge between us, no arbiter to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Bill, it's funny that you mentioned Abraham this morning. I was thinking of, of what Jesus said of Abraham in John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus said, Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And in and in Hebrews eleven twenty six, we read of Moses where it says, He regarded abuse... Suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for his eyes were fixed on their reward. So we read that and we understand that, that God had revealed something about the day of Christ to Abraham and to Moses. Well, I'm just wondering and ponder this that as we read through Job, could God have revealed something about the day of Christ? To job as well and I, I don't know a reason biblically why not this would make makes this makes sense to me as we read through job when he's asking for a mediator when he has an understanding of the resurrection <clears throat> so what do we do with this what do we do with trying times well in first Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. And what is the way out? The mediator that Job longed for. 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. You see, even as we read about Job, where Job suffered greatly, his suffering was but a shadow. His suffering pointed to the one who would suffer in our place. Uh, Hebrews says this For since he himself was tested And has suffered He is able to help Those who are tested And Jesus spoke this Who says uh, uh, Of Jesus Spoken of Jesus For we do not have a high priest Who is unable to sympathize With our weakness But one who has been tested In every way as we are Yet without sin So what do you think of Job's comforters? I mean, after reading through Job, I don't think they deserve the name as Job's comforters very well. You know, didn't Job deserve better friends? Has a man ever had three more useless friends during a time of trial? I mean, they even became a part of Job's trials in the way that they misapplied truth. But it's interesting Because in the New Testament, in Mark, uh, in chapter 14, we read of this. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And Jesus told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow, grief to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came back and found the the three men sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? He asked Peter. Couldn't you stay awake one hour stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation (laughs) the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak once again he went away and prayed saying the same thing and again he came back and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open Jesus sought some comfort in his three dearest friends and found them asleep they had so little compassion that they that it couldn't even keep them from falling asleep and jesus was left alone to the wrath of god interesting how even this mirrors job and his three friends you know back to job chapter 8 verse 20 bildad said this Look, God does not reject a person of integrity. Really? Isn't that really what happened? This was the reason that they used to rebuke Job. This was the very reason that many used to reject Christ. Look at how he suffered. He could not be good. Surely a good man would never be allowed to suffer like Jesus but God did seem to reject a blameless man. Even even Eliphaz, this is in Job chapter 4, verse 27, said, Eliphaz said, Who, being innocent, has ever perished? Really? Well, what about the very first human to die? Abel, the innocent brother murdered by Cain. Do you see what's going on here? By highlighting Job's innocent suffering, God is getting in our minds this exceptional category, as it is, that points us to Jesus. You know, proverbial wisdom would say if we do stupid things, we're going to get bad consequences. And normally, generally, that's true. Um, Stupid is as stupid does. But that's not all the wisdom there is. There is another category. There is such a thing. As innocent suffering. As we see in Job. That points to truly innocent suffering. Sometimes in this world. The innocent do suffer. Do suffer. Your hope and my hope. For all eternity. Rests on that fact. Jesus is the mediator that Job needed and Jesus is the mediator that you and I need too. Let me end with with one final story here. And the challenge is that we all, all Christians need to be engaged in preparing one another for suffering so that when suffering comes we may be so shaped By God's word, that we may be able to put our hands into the hand of God, even in darkness. There's a story of a Lutheran pastor who was preaching in Stuttgart near the end of World War II. During a period of heavy Allied bombing, he was walking quite discouraged through the city, absorbed in gloomy thoughts when he found himself looking down into a, cro- into a concrete pit of a cellar that had been shattered by a bomb. And more than 50 people had been down in that uh, cellar when the bomb hit and they had been killed. A woman, he says, a woman came up to me and asked whether I was the pastor since she was really not sure because of the clothes I was wearing. Then she said, My husband died down there. His place was right under the hole. The cleanup squad was unable to find a trace of him. All that was left was his cap. But get this. She says, we were there the last time you preached in the cathedral church. And before this pit, I want to thank you for preparing him for eternity. That's a reason God gave us the book of Job. So that we can understand it. We can be ready for suffering. We can be ready to help others who are suffering. We can prepare others for eternity. Let's pray. Father. Lord God, you are all powerful. You are all good. Help us to keep that in our minds every thought, every day. Open our eyes to see the good that you do that would normally go unnoticed by us. Father, help us to see how your goodness and suffering fit together. Help us to see how trustworthy you are. Bring, a, bring back to mind different times in our lives when you've proven that trustworthiness. Prepare us for times of suffering so that we can walk beside others. And when we're faced with trials and suffering, may we turn to the Mediator, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks holy name. Amen.